What do big pharma, big tobacco, and big oil have in common? Climate One conversations feature oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. Tobacco companies, opioid suppliers, gun manufacturers, and the fossil fuel industry all have been brought under fire and into the courts for knowingly causing public harm and even death with their products. But there's an important difference, says environmental law professor Ann Carlson, personal responsibility. Climate change harms from oil companies harm all of us, whereas one of the big distinctions that actually in some respects makes the opioid and tobacco cases harder is that you have an individual who engaged in behavior that is contributing to the harm. Ted Boutras, a lawyer who represents Chevron, recognizes that distinction too, but he maintains that his client and other fossil fuel companies aren't entirely culpable. They're only giving the public the oil and gas they want and need to fuel their daily lives. It's not just the production, it's the demand for it. And it, it's something we need for hot water. We need it for transportation. It, almost everything we do depend on uh, fossil fuel products. And so we are really all in this together. On today's program, we look at recent litigation in so-called nuisance cases. Should corporations be held liable for harmful outcomes like mass shootings, the opioid crisis, and climate change? How much responsibility falls on the product and how much on the user? Joining me now are Ellen Gilmer, senior legal reporter for Bloomberg News, who's been reporting on climate change for years, and Ann Carlson, co-director of UCLA's Emmett Institute on Climate Change and Environment. I asked her to tell us how tobacco, oil, and opioid court cases are and aren't connected. Tobacco, oil, and the op opioid litigation are all related in a few ways. The first is just the basic legal case that plaintiffs made in the tobacco cases and are making in both opioid and climate change nuisance litigation. And that is under an old doctrine called public nuisance, which is a pretty general concept that if somebody, a defendant, knowingly assists in the creation of a harm to a public right, then the plaintiff might be able to bring a case against that defendant. And there are lots of questions about what a public right is, what it means to contribute to causing harm to a public right, and so forth. And we can talk more about those details. But that's the first similarity. I think the second similarity is that in all three of these cases, there is interesting and emerging information about what defendant companies knew, the tobacco companies, the opioid companies, pharmaceutical companies, and big oil about how their products caused harm, when they knew that information, and what they did with that information uh, that really perpetuated the harm and made it go on longer than it would have had the defendants acknowledged that their, their products were causing harm. There seems to be a fundamental difference, though, uh, Ann Carlson, that, you know, tobacco, someone smokes a cigarette and the smoke goes into their lungs. Someone takes an opioid pill and the chemicals go into their body. But with oil, it's very different, right? The, the harm goes into the atmosphere and then it's much more you know, or indirect. It is a difference. And I think it one of the big questions is, is it a difference that makes a legal difference in court? But it's also worth noting that 
climate change harms from oil companies harm all of us, whereas uh, one of the big distinctions that actually in some respects makes the opioid and tobacco cases harder is that you have an individual who engaged in behavior that is contributing to the harm. Mm -hmm. So in the case of a smoker, the smoker chose to smoke. In the case of an opioid user, one, you know, argument that defendants might make is that somebody takes opioids in a way that is harmful to them rather than helpful, whereas individual consumers are just using the products that oil companies produce to turn the lights on or to operate their vehicles and don't really have the same level of personal culpability, at least from a legal perspective, that defendants might try to argue about. Alan Gilmer, you've been following the oil and opioid connection uh, in the courts. How are the companies in the cases looking at each other in terms of trying to learn or, or not be like the other one? Well, yeah, it's it's really interesting. There was actually a ruling in one of the opioid cases in Oklahoma in 2019 in which a judge sided uh, with the state of Oklahoma against Johnson & Johnson, um, which is a pharmaceutical company. And in after that ruling happened people involved in the climate litigation were looking very closely at whether that meant anything for their own cases. You know, a, a single judge in a in a single court in Oklahoma interpreting Oklahoma law, that's not binding in other courts, but it can be considered persuasive. So, you know, plaintiffs in the climate litigation were looking at it to say, hey, this is helping our case. And, you know, oil and gas attorneys were looking at it to see if there were any you know, things that they should be nervous about in the climate litigation. And why did, there's a debate going on. And some people want these battles to happen in state courts. Some people want them to happen in federal courts. Who favors what level of courts, Ellen? So the the plaintiffs, so we're talking about these climate cases brought by local governments and the state of Rhode Island and, and uh, cities, and uh, they are all filing their cases in state court because that is where public nuisance claims generally arise. So they're filing their case in state court. They're talking about state law issues and harms to their locality. Uh, the All the cases have been transferred up to federal court, which is something that a defendant can do if it's a question of federal law or for a variety of reasons. So they argue that, hey, this is actually an issue of federal law because it's so broad in scope. It's a global problem. This doesn't belong in state court. It belongs at the federal level. Ann Carlson, why do uh, large corporations who are defending themselves prefer federal courts to uh, state courts? Big companies that are defending themselves against these climate nuisance cases have a number of reasons they want to be in federal court. Probably the most important one is that there's a Supreme Court decision that was decided a number of years ago uh, prior to the election of Donald Trump, actually prior to the election of Barack Obama, that said that the Federal Clean Air Act displaces or prevents plaintiffs from bringing public nuisance actions under what's called federal common law, which is something that federal courts kind of create and interpret themselves. And so one of the things the oil companies are trying to do is to argue that these cases should also be displaced under federal law, even though they're brought under state nuisance law. It's a very convoluted and kind of complicated doctrinal question. And they think that federal courts are more likely to be sympathetic to those arguments. I think there's a couple of other reasons. Another reason that they favor being in federal court is because there are some interesting constitutional questions about federal courts deciding these cases that the defendants think are going to be um, 
that the judges in federal court are going to be more sympathetic to them. And a big one is a question of whether this is really a question that Congress ought to be considering, whether to regulate greenhouse gas emissions is essentially what they're trying to say. This is a federal, really congressional question as opposed to a court question. And courts getting involved in these questions are risking um, interfering with separation of powers under the Constitution. Um, I, I, frankly, I don't think those arguments are likely to prevail. I think the states uh, that have brought these cases and the cities that have brought these cases have a better claim that they belong in state court, but that's not stopping defendants from trying to get them into federal court. I think there's a third reason, too, and that is that the federal courts, uh, particularly since the election of Donald Trump, are more conservative than many state courts. And so I think the hope on the part of oil companies is that they will be less sympathetic to plaintiff claims that the oil companies should be responsible for some of the harms that climate change is causing now and will continue to cause in the future. Rhode Island is the fastest warming state in the lower 48. Alaska is the state that's seen the most warming, and Rhode Island is a close second, already seen two degrees Celsius of warming since industrial times. Uh, they're suing Shell, Chevron, Exxon. Uh, Ellen, what is that case about and why are other states supporting it? So Rhode Island is suing those oil companies and saying that, you know, their marketing, uh, production and marketing and sale of fossil fuels is contributing to problems in Rhode Island, sea level rise, various other impacts of climate change that the state and the state's residents are experiencing on the ground. Um, so they have raised a public nuisance claim, uh, among several other legal arguments against oil companies. And is product liability, you know, the gun manufacturers have, have a, a liability shield from the 2005 Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act. Uh, there's been a dent in that recently after Sandy Hook. Is product liability a factor in the oil litigation, Ellen? In some of the cases, they're blending in claims over product liability. So product liability is, uh, you know, you made a product that uh, that ended up hurting people because of faulty design or you failed to warn the public um, about harms from a product. And so in, in some of the cases that cities and counties have filed, they've said not only is this a public nuisance, but it also violates these uh, product liability provisions. And Carlson, are, are any parallels between guns, uh, oil, and these other products we're talking about? Well, the biggest difference is what you have already mentioned, and that is that the gun manufacturers have pretty close to absolute immunity from lawsuits because of a congressional act. The oil companies have played around with trying to get Congress to immunize them from these lawsuits in the climate change context. So, for example, one of the carbon taxes that has been proposed for a while included a liability protection provision. It's actually been dropped from the proposal. Um, so I guess that's the biggest difference. There are similarities, again, as Ellen suggested, that when you have a product that you put into commerce and it causes harms, that those harms uh, can carry liability with them. Probably the most straightforward way of thinking about it is that the um, some of the lawsuits include failures to warn consumers about the harms of the product that was being sold. And in fact, in the case of the oil companies, they're actually in some respects more culpable than the gun manufacturers because they tried to hide the harms of their product from consumers by engaging in a campaign to dissuade the American public that climate change was occurring. Gun manufacturers, I think for the most part, don't 
um, deny that their products actually cause harm. They're, in fact, designed to cause harm if they're used against other human beings. Um, that's something that the oil companies have not easily acknowledged and for many, many years denied. And Ann Carlson, one of the interesting things that came out of the tobacco cases was there were whistleblowers, there were documents, you know, boxes of documents dropped on doorsteps, portrayed in Hollywood films, uh, which often is a result of discovery. That, that's one of the key, um, you know, tools in these cases. What are we seeing in, in the oil and opioid cases in terms of you know documents coming forward? Because tobacco stories and deals were played out sort of before everyone had cell phones and email. Uh, are we seeing you know the revelation of doc internal documents now as part of these proceedings? We are starting to see in the oil company cases documents emerging about early scientific studies that the oil companies funded in the 1950s and 60s and into the 1970s that established really clearly the connection between the burning of fossil fuels and climate change and the kinds of harms that we are likely to see from climate change. In fact, there's some really remarkable documents that have come forward that show that the oil companies predicted with near certainty what um, the parts per million of carbon dioxide would be in 2020, looking a lot like what it looks like today. They also predicted that in the um, in the 20 teens, I guess that's the way to say it, that there could be a superstorm hurricane that hit the state of New York and that that kind of hurricane could increase public support for regulating greenhouse gases. Turns out, of course, that we had Hurricane Sandy that looks a lot like that prediction. So we have documents showing that, and then we have documents that show that the oil companies poured massive amounts of money, millions of dollars, into these campaigns to try to confuse the public about whether climate change was actually caused by the burning of fossil fuels. We're only at a very preliminary stage, however. Most of those documents were revealed actually by journalists who found a trove of documents at the University of Texas library from Exxon showing a lot of this. And we've also seen the uncovering of some documents from Shell. But the discovery process in the cases is only just beginning. So we are likely to see a couple of things through that process. One is requiring executives of oil companies to actually testify about what they knew and when they knew it. Um, so again, we're likely to see um, discovery in these cases, presuming that they go forward, and the discovery is something that the oil companies really, I think, do not want made public. Ann Carlson, one of the things, tools, is uh, non-disclosure agreements is to prevent people from from talking. What have companies learned from the tobacco case to either lock down information or to prevent something like that happening to their industry? Well, I'm not sure that we've gotten far enough yet to know the answer to that question, but one really interesting development that could occur is if one of these cases succeeds. So there, as Alan said, there are about a dozen, 12 or 14 of these cases that have been filed around the country. If one of them succeeds and a municipality gets damages to either prepare for the climate change effects that are going to impact their jurisdictions or to pay for damage that has already occurred, then you're likely to see the floodgates open, so to speak, no pun intended there, um, where you're going to see municipalities around the country looking to see whether they should also be filing cases. That's really parallel to what happened in tobacco. And a lot of cities and states are 
watching the cases that have already been filed really closely and thinking about filing their own. Uh, We already have a couple of municipalities um, in Hawaii that are working on filing cases as they've watched these initial ones go through their preliminary steps. And Ellen Gilmer, the industry had a very interesting response to these uh, counties filing public nuisance cases, which is, hey, you municipalities, counties, you issue public uh, municipal bonds to build infrastructure, roads and airport, and you don't fully disclose the climate risk in the bonds you're selling right back at you. That's true. There's been a big fight over that. And, you know, there's been a lot of reporting on that, a lot more to come. So that's going to be an issue that's going to come up in all of the court documents, too. And Carlson, the tobacco litigation started in the states and ended up with a $250 billion you know, universal macro settlement. You know, how do you think this might play out in oil? Is it going to be lots of states? And then when you, as you said, start to hear the first jury verdicts or verdicts, then there's, is there a grand bargain that is on the horizon that people think might happen like tobacco? I think it's a little too early to say whether any kind of grand bargain could emerge. The These preliminary legal scuffles about whether the cases belong in state or federal court are just the beginning of a lot of motions that the oil companies are going to file trying to get rid of the cases so they never even get to a jury. And then there are really complicated questions about causation, about relative contribution from you know one company versus another versus companies that aren't even in front of the courts in these cases and and what level of damage climate change is responsible for say with respect to wildfires you know which are naturally occurring but have gotten worse as a result of drought and higher temperatures so i think we're a long way from from knowing kind of whether one of these cases is going to succeed if they do succeed however you know i could imagine some sort of grand bargain that involves you know some effort by municipalities to get to get compensated for at least some of the harms for particularly the most provable climate change harms sea level rise is the best one of those where there's really a linear relationship between rising sea levels and rising um, levels of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere but I think we're a long way from really trying to figure out how what that would look like and and whether it will occur, you know, assuming that we get a successful jury verdict. And there is shared culpability, responsibility, right? We all use fossil fuels every day. But is it seems true to me that that the oil companies knew their product was harmful before the public generally did, that they knew first uh, before the public realized that, that their lifestyles were causing these problems. Is that is that fair? The oil companies have known since the 1960s, even earlier, that their product contributed to accumulating greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, which was going to cause climate change. There's no question about that. But they did more than that. It's not just that they knew about it. It's that then they actively campaigned to try to persuade the public that climate change was not connected to their product. So there's really deceptive practices involved here. The other thing to note is just that the vast majority of greenhouse gases have been contributed in the last 30 years. And there's a relatively small number of defendants or oil companies that are responsible for a very, very large proportion of those greenhouse gases. So that makes this question of liability a stronger one for the plaintiffs and easier for a court to think about how you might actually apportion damages if you get to that stage. 
You're listening to a Climate One conversation about climate change liability. We've been speaking with Ann Carlson of UCLA's Emmett Institute on Climate Change and Environment and Ellen Gilmer, senior legal reporter for Bloomberg News. Coming up, two attorneys who believe the oil and energy corporations they represent shouldn't have to shoulder all of the blame. It really is a a situation where we're all in this together. And from a legal perspective, it makes no sense to really say it's those who are producing something that really contributed to the the modern society. It's the, the way civilization is developed. That's up next when Climate One continues. Hi everyone, I'm Sarah Catherine, and I work on strategy and content for Climate One. We've been interviewing top experts on all things climate since our podcast got started over a decade ago. But now you're the ones we want to interview. Climate One would love your honest feedback on a survey we're doing to better understand our audiences. We're offering everyone who participates the chance to win one of eight $250 gift cards by going to climateone.org forward slash survey. We really look forward to hearing your thoughts there. Thanks again for taking our brief survey. Again, that's at climateone.org forward slash survey. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about climate liability. Harvard historian Naomi Oreskes and others have proven that oil companies spent millions of dollars over decades deceiving the public about the fact that burning fossil fuels disrupts the climate. Who should take responsibility now? Joining me are Ted Boutras, an attorney in Los Angeles at Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher, who represents Chevron, and Scott Siegel, partner at the Washington, D.C. lobbying firm Bracewell, where he represents energy companies. To start things off, here's a clip from a 1991 documentary produced by Shell Oil. As you'll hear, it offers a rather unexpected take on global warming. Global warming is not yet certain, but many think that to wait for final proof would be irresponsible. Action now is seen as the only safe insurance. But what should that action be? If the threat of global warming is to be realistically addressed, the future will need to be different. That's a Shell Oil uh, film produced 30 years ago. Ted Boutris, what's your response to what the oil companies knew 30 years ago and what they were saying publicly in the subsequent 30 years? Well, it really is interesting because back in 1990, that was the beginning of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is really the leading group of scientists. And back then, uh, the IPCC, as it's known, um, and it's a UN organization, was saying, look, we see a change in climate. We think that human activities... Um, are contributing to that, and we think there could be serious consequences, but we're not sure, and there was uncertainty. And so science has gotten uh, better and better and clearer and clearer on these issues. And you know, the United States government, you know, back in 1965, President Johnson issued a proclamation saying that th- there's this issue and that human activities are contributing. So there was a lot of knowledge, a lot of scholarship out there. And the question has always been how to grapple with those issues and, um, and, and adjust to our energy needs, our national security needs, our economic needs while addressing climate change. So it sounded, I had not heard that clip before. It sounded like that was the, the theme that they were sounding there. And it's, it's really, it, it carries through to this day. We've got an important global issue. I think that the energy companies, the oil and gas companies can be big 
participants in helping solve the problem. Uh, Scott Siegel, uh, but in that ensuing years, as the science became more clear, the industry, uh, through the Global Climate Coalition and other organizations, pursued large spending campaigns, creating doubt, taking a book from the tobacco playbook. So is there some responsibility or liability between what the companies knew internally and the doubt they were expressing publicly? Well, one thing I think you hear from the the clip that you played is that policy choice is a very difficult and complex question. Uh, exactly what to do uh, is a difficult question. Uh, for example, if you choose a policy uh, mechanism that is too inflexible or imposes too much cost, reduces the affordability or reliability of power, you may find that you have a public backlash on your hands that ends up with the repeal one step forward, two steps backward. So, uh, so you have to be careful in the direction you move. Now, I will tell you, at the very time that there was a robust debate going on in Washington uh, regarding what to do about climate change, there was serially uh, public policy being adopted along the way. So, for example, um, uh, when the UN framework first came out, the United States uh, joined that with the uh, acquiescence of the Congress uh, and, uh, and moved forward at that point. We did not end up uh, endorsing the Kyoto Protocol uh, for reasons that uh, had, had more to do with whether uh, all countries in the world would be equitably uh, uh, engaging and whether it would therefore be effective. But we adopted broad sweeping energy efficiency legislation that set up the basis of, uh, of, uh, of energy efficiency standards for appliances and buildings covering um, dozens of, of industrial sectors. Uh, we set up an inventory to measure what we were dealing with. We passed uh, principal uh, production tax credits for bringing new renewable power uh, to market. So all along the way, uh, we have made advances in the, in the area of public policy. Until now, uh, for the last uh, two of the last three years, we've seen reductions in, in CO2 from the power sector. We've seen uh, in, increase in improvements in the energy efficiency of automobiles. So all of that's occurred as a result of not only market trends, but also developments in public policy. A lot of times, if you listen to what some in the advocacy community will say, you think it's been a, a, a complete wasteland. There's been nothing that's happened to advance the cause. And I guess the point I'm trying to make is, no, that it's been taken seriously, but it's been approached carefully. And, uh, and that's what you've seen in the public policy uh, area. Greg, I was just going to jump in because it kind of, one of the things, um, I didn't want to take head on the notion that um, I think the plaintiff's lawyers in a lot of the climate change cases have been um, advocating is that the um, oil, oil and gas companies were, they had secret knowledge and they were then putting out, you know, misinformation and, and they tried to analogize it to tobacco and other areas. It just, it doesn't make any sense because the, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals noted uh, in, a, in a big case, this Juliana case against the United States a couple of weeks ago, that it was well known. The federal government knew um, the, the, the problems of climate change, the, the potential causes, and knew that there was an issue here. Uh, and, and so, and there was widespread discussion. And, and in fact, in the San Francisco case that I've been handling, um, we had a climate science tutorial that I presented at several scientists. It was really a great experience, I thought, because we agreed on a lot of things. The judge said, sounds like there's a lot of agreement. And there was. And in that case, the lawyers had tried to make the argument that there was this secret misinformation campaign. 
And once they were in court, the claim fell apart. Some of the documents they were relying on were industry documents where industry officials were talking about and presenting the findings of the IPCC, the UN organization, talking about what those findings were. So it wasn't secret knowledge. It was they were talking about the public knowledge. So this is a playbook that they're trying to adapt to climate change. And it, it's really counterproductive because we are, for example, I represent Chevron. They, they accept the IPCC findings. They don't do their own science. And so for a decade, that's what they look to. Uh, so I really just kind of want to debunk that point right out of the, the gate. We recognize there's an issue. We have to deal with it. The, everybody bears responsibility. All of us bear responsibility for going forward as to how we um, address the issue. And that was, I guess, that sharing and distribution of responsibility is one of the key questions. You know, we everyone listening to this podcast and radio show uses fossil fuels every day, and there's a question of producer responsibility and consumer responsibility. And that's one of the issues that's being wrestled in in court right now. Is you know what responsibility do the producers have. There's been studies that have shown that, you know, uh, over the last decades, 25 producers account for just over half of the emissions of the last three decades, that the top 100 account for about 71% of this. And that just is industrial concentration, right? And a lot of those oil companies are from Russia, Saudi Arabia, Iran, uh, India, and some of them are Exxon and Pemex and, and China, of course. So, you know, what is the industry responsibility for knowing the science, as you've acknowledged, Ted, uh, what is the industry responsibility for the harm that we're seeing now? Well, I think it, it really does go to the fact that it's, it's very different than other circumstances where you've got some dangerous product that, that um, is or can be used in a way that can be harmful. Oil and gas, and I'll just focus on those two products, are something we all need. And, and, and so it's, it's not just the production, it's the demand for it. And it, it's, it's something we need for hot water. We need it for transportation. It, almost everything we do, the, the screens on our, our phones have, you know, depend on uh, fossil fuel products. And so we are really all in this together. Um, it's, you know, I'll just read you a passage from Judge Alsop's decision in the Northern District, the San Francisco case. He was balancing the potential harm versus the benefits. And he said, and without fossil fuels, this is a quote, virtually all of our monumental progress would have been impossible. All of us have benefited. Having reaped the benefit of that historic progress, would it really be fair to now ignore our own responsibility in the use of fossil fuels and place the blame for global warming on those who supplied what we demanded? So it really is a, a situation where we're all in this together. Um, and, and from a legal perspective, to as Judge Alsop was pointing to there, it, it's not legally appropriate. It's, it makes no sense to really say it's those who are producing something that really contributed to the, the modern society. It's the, the way civilization is developed. And does that mean we shouldn't all look around and say, for example, um, Chevron, you know, it's seeking to reduce its own, fossil, its own carbon footprint. It's investing in innovative technologies 
And I really think technology is going to be the key, some things like carbon capture. A lot of fuel companies have acknowledged the scientific consensus and they say they support Paris. They've constrained competition. Oil in particular has had a monopoly on transportation mobility for, for more than 100 years. Now electric is chipping away at that. Scott Siegel, the companies say publicly, we support Paris, we recognize the science, but in Washington, the American Petroleum Institute and other groups do everything they can to prevent a price on carbon, to prevent new entrants and competing fuels coming into the market. So they're trying to protect basically oil's monopoly on, on, on mobility for aviation and, and automobiles. So they're saying one thing publicly, but in the policy realm, they're trying to prevent carbon pricing and new competition from other fuels. Well, um, you know, the first thing I'd say is, is that with respect to the fuel mix for automobiles in the United States today, um, the actually the 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 downstream of the oil industry, that's the petroleum refiners, have been the active participants bringing a new range, whether that be advanced advanced fuels, biofuels. Um, in fact, in the 2005 Energy Policy Act and the 2007 Energy Policy Act, they were active negotiators on what the renewable fuels policy of the United States would look like. Yeah, it's a lot of corn. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and believe me, that's not my favorite product. All right. But those that advocate in favor of biofuels have 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 suggested that that is a, a, a way to address global climate change as well. But there there is controversy there. Now, with respect to electric automobiles, there isn't just one energy industry in the United States. Uh, it may be true that um, the oil industry reflects at least some of where its own consumers are with respect to uh, how uh, how uh, free and available automobility can be and, and the significant benefits of the internal combustion engine. But on the other side of the spectrum, the electric industry has been, I, I know this will really shock you, no pun intended, has been a strong supporter of the, uh, of the introduction of electric vehicles. So, you know, industry is not a monolithic concept one way or the other. In addition, even in the oil sector, there are companies that are now getting into the uh, electric charging stations and, and doing what they do best, which is distributing the power that runs automobiles and trucks. And so if that if the if the fuel mix is going to turn more toward electricity, I think we can anticipate that uh, these companies will be involved in that market as well. They're very innovative. And uh, that is their true history, innovation. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about climate change and corporate responsibility. This is Climate One. Coming up, should carbon emissions be litigated or regulated? One molecule of carbon dioxide emitted anywhere in the world is literally around the world within seven days, which both shows the incompatibility, particularly of state court actions, but also shows the necessity of having a policy-based solution rather than a judicially concocted solution. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. This conversation was recorded over the internet with people in different places and times. We're doing that more and more these days to expand our reach and cut our carbon impact. Climate One records many of our conversations with a live audience at our modern and green new home on the waterfront in San Francisco. When you're in town, I invite you to come check us out. Our programs are open to the public and listed on climateone.org. 
Let's get back to my conversation about climate litigation with Ted Boutras of Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher and Scott Siegel, who represents energy companies at the Washington, D.C. lobbying firm Bracewell. A number of high-profile climate cases over the past decade, notably in New York, Baltimore, and San Francisco, have been thrown out or gotten bogged down in legal wrangling over whether these decisions should be made at the state courts, federal courts, or in Congress. Ted Boutras gives us the backstory and some context. If we look back at the history, there was a first wave of climate change litigation starting back in the early 2000s. And the, uh, the plaintiffs bringing those cases included governmental entities, and they brought them in federal court. And the, the, um, the federal courts found that, and it went all the way to the Supreme Court in the American Electric Power, what we call the AEP case. And the US Supreme Court, in a decision authored by Justice Ginsburg, said global warming, climate change is a complex issue that involves science, that involves economics, that involves energy needs that involves the kind of things that courts, federal courts, just can't, aren't equipped to deal with. And that the Congress has delegated to the Environmental Protection Agency. And therefore, the Supreme Court held those claims could not go forward. And they were nuisance claims. And, And by the way, nuisance law has never been applied to anything remotely like climate change. It's It started out as a a tort for if you know someone was throwing garbage into your your yard and it's it's a very broad vague tort but it's always been a much more micro uh, cause of action so this is this has been a real um, you know swing for the fences for almost twenty years now trying to expand that tort but the federal courts and the Supreme Court said those claims can't go forward so um, fast forward about ten years or eight years after the Supreme Court's ruling. There was a, a, the playbook changed, and the idea was to go to state courts and make the same arguments under state law. We, in the, these cases that were brought, removed them to federal court, saying that if anything, these are cases that involve not um, activities in one state, one neighborhood, even in just the United States. All the claims seek to regulate global activity, oil and gas production all around the world, and emissions all around the world. And the only courts that can deal with that and the only body of law you can look to is federal law. That's the source of the law. Then the question is, is there a cause of action? So we removed those cases. And, and there, um, Judge Alsop found that those cases should be in federal court. A couple of other courts have gone the other way. But whatever court they're in, they, they, there are claims that cannot go forward because states don't have the power to regulate activities outside their own state. The plaintiffs recognize, uh, to their credit, that their claims depend on all of the conduct. And you can't tell which emissions from where are causing what. It's everything together. And so the courts simply cannot um, address these issues through litigation. These are policy issues. Our policymakers need to step up. You know, you mentioned Congress and, you know, different groups and organizations and companies are going to have different positions on issues and that admittedly are, you know, uh, based on their shareholders' needs and their companies. But the policymakers need to step up. We all agree there's an issue here. Congress, the president, the other countries, we need to address this problem. But litigation like this is not going to be the the the, the ticket in the, as I mentioned, the Ninth Circuit in the Juliana case ruled where um, uh, a public interest group and, and, and sued on behalf of uh, young people 
said, these are problems. The federal government has known it's undisputed for years, but a court can't tell Congress what to do or tell the United States to stop using oil and gas and, and demand that there be laws enacted. That is for the policymakers. So that's why these cases are not going not gonna to work. And we'll get to Congress in a minute. But first, there is a uh, growing wave of opioid litigation, and that is happening in, uh, at state level, as tobacco did. And is there any connection or concern about in the oil industry about what's happening in opioids, that that could prevent some difficult precedents for them? No, those cases really, um, first, they're really at the, the early stages. You know, in the tobacco cases, they did try nuisance theories, and the nuisance theories and the cases never went anywhere. They were dismissed. Uh, because the, the the cause of action just doesn't fit, but the analogy doesn't hold up. You know, opioids and and tobacco are complete completely different situation from the oil and gas industry, where we're talking about products in the oil in the fossil fuel area that are uh, all of us use and need to exist in the modern world. They're products that the federal government and the states encourage be produced. Um, San Francisco and Oakland. Are in New York, and I, I handled the New York case as well. Are major users and and of fossil fuels, major contributors to the issue they're claiming is a nuisance. Um, that's totally different than the opioid case, which is a more and those aren't interstate, international regulatory issues because you're talking about things that you know in the opioid, it, it, someone who. Um, you know, was prescribed the drug and argues they were prescribed too much and, and they're in, in, in a state and a state can regulate what happens in its own state. Here, it's, it's just this literally global uh, issue being seek, where you're seeking to try to regulate through, through a state nuisance cause of action, which is just light years away from even those more extraordinary efforts to expand nuisance law. So we don't think those analogies hold up at all. And there's something fundamentally different too. Tobacco, you smoke into your body, but pills you put into your body, there's very direct uh, cause of action versus fossil fuels. The, the use of products is very different. But I want to get to, uh, to Scott Siegel and the idea that policy leaders need to step up. You said that a lot of policy has happened. The science, which you both acknowledge, will say that that policy is not enough. And particularly under the current administration, that a lot of those regulations are going auto efficient efficiencies going backwards from 5% annual fuel efficiency increase to now they're proposing one point something percent annual increase. So, and there's a large influence of the fossil fuel industry in Congress that many would say is trying to slow down progress. So where is the policy going to step up as Ted Boutros just asked for? Right. Well, the first thing I want to do is, is agree on two important scores. First, this issue is a, an inherently an international issue. Uh, one molecule of carbon dioxide emitted anywhere in the world is literally around the world within seven days, which, which both shows the incompatibility, particularly of state court actions, but also shows the necessity of having a policy-based solution rather than a, a judicially uh, concocted uh, solution. I guess I would also say that the worst of all worlds would be if the courts sort of beat the Congress to the punch in addressing a CO2 in a comprehensive way. Because if, if they did, we might have a patchwork quilt. Uh, we, might, uh, we might have um, uh, a failure to consider the uh, economic consequences of, of exactly what would occur, the, the public health consequences of having an inadequate supply of affordable and reliable power. So no people don't want that. People might find it reassuring 
that the effort to address climate change in Congress maybe is a little closer than we think that it is. Uh, there, ha there has been uh, definitely a change in the way the public views this. I know we're all familiar with polling data, which indicates that, you know, six in 10 Americans are now either alarmed or concerned about global warming. Even among Republican voters, seven in 10 Republican adults under the age of 45 uh, regard uh, climate change as the likely result of anthropogenic activity that needs to be addressed by public policy. So there's an emerged, this, this political consensus, which has been missing, scientific consensus is, has been present. The political consensus is beginning to emerge in powerful ways. How can you test that hypothesis? Well, the, the House Republican leader, Kevin McCarthy, just the just on the on the 12th of February, announced uh, a new set of policies, which I think reflect an inflection point, even among the members of the Republican caucus, of the necessity of dealing with comprehensive climate change solutions. He talks about advancing clean energy technology, carbon sequestration, making permanent tax credits to encourage that uh, the implementation of that technology, enhancing plastics recycling. Uh, you uh, famously planting a trillion trees, all of these issues designed to address it. Are all of those going to be enough taken together? Perhaps not, but it's certainly a good start, and it shows the political salience of addressing uh, climate change on both the Democratic and, and uh, uh, Republican side of the aisle. Look, in this Congress, uh, there have already been 306 bills introduced to deal with uh, either methane or carbon dioxide or other forms of global climate change. Just recently, the Committee of Substantive Jurisdiction in the House of Representatives introduced a 622-page bill, which has about every uh, mechanism one can think of that would that would potentially, uh, with the exception of a carbon tax, and that's for jurisdictional reasons, um, that would address a, a, a global climate change. All of these things are moving faster than you would guess. You can say, well, it's a presidential election year. It's very hard to pass legislation during an election year. That's true. We regard from a Washington perspective, the year 2020 is more of a table setting year. But I believe dinner will be served in 2021 or 2022 as Congress begins to pick more and more going beyond merely incentives and, and research programs and into uh, regulatory or quasi-regulatory programs. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Scott Siegel, a partner at Bracewell in Washington, D.C., which represents energy companies, and Ted Boutros, who represents she Chevron and other energy interests as an attorney. I want to go to our, our lightning round. First, this is uh, yes or no questions for our guests, Ted Boutros and Scott Siegel. Uh, true or false, Ted Boutros, in the past 10 years, there's been a big gap between what oil company scientists knew about human-caused climate change and what the companies said publicly about it. Uh, false. True or false, Ted Boutrous, Chevron underestimated the environmental liability of Texaco's operations in Ecuador when it acquired Texaco for $45 billion in 2000. False. I think that they underestimated the fact that there could be fraudulent litigation brought against them, as the court in New York and the Second Circuit found. But I think the courts have, have helped resolve that by, by calling it a fraudulent extortion scheme. True or false, Scott Siegel, you are concerned about the eroding rule of law in the United States. I think everyone should be concerned about the eroding <laughs> rule of law in the United States. And it has nothing to do with climate change. It has to do with other decisions, uh, per, some of which are in our executive branch. Uh, which leads to Ted Boutrous, true or false. I've looked at your tweets. Uh, you are concerned about active attacks on the rule of law by the Trump administration. 
That, that is absolutely true. I've been deeply troubled by those sorts of attacks, including attacks on judges, including um, interventions by the president with respect to what line prosecutors are doing, um, attacks on freedom of speech and freedom of the press. So I'm very concerned. And I, I think this is a time for citizens to rise up on all these issues and, and participate in our democracy and, and protect the rule of law. Recently, I'm going to bring this, as we wrap this up, I want to bring this down to kind of a, a personal level. I find this fascinating that uh, Ted Boutrous, you're a lawyer defending the, uh, the oil industry, but you're concerned about the Trump administration. You've t- tweeted that our democracy is in trouble. And Scott Siegel, you're a former partner with Rudy Giuliani. He officiated your wedding to, uh, to an, his first same-sex wedding. So I'm just interested in you two as as personalities and people talking about you know how climate change will affect you, and can our democracy right now solve something like climate change? Because you've both said the courts are not the place. Congress is the place. It seems to be broken, and it's run now by a climate denier. And it doesn't look very good. I I spoke a moment ago about how I think we're reaching an inflection point politically, and I really do believe that. And you're really going to think I'm crazy in a second when I tell you, irrespective of who's elected in 2020, I think there will be a significant amount of pressure to take action on climate change. And once you remove the president from uh, from pressure from his right wing by by uh, reminding him that he can't be elected again uh, there, you know, the, he, he might have some more maneuverability, too. But just some data for people to take a to take a look at, you know, um, Tom Steyer's running for president. He spent one hundred and twenty six million dollars so far in advertising. Jay Inslee, before he dropped out, spent another two million. Uh, Mike Bloomberg said he'd uh, spend, you know, a billion dollars. Uh, um, he spent $275 million so far, uh, and uh, climate change is one of his key issues for framing up. Why do I bring these statistics forward? Because it shows that the climate change issue is being framed as a front and center issue for political action. Those dollars don't instantly fall away as soon as they're spent. It creates an impression, it moves the needle, and it has. The polling data has shown that, and I think Republicans... Uh, and Democrats alike know that they have to do something. Scott Boutros, your thoughts on Trump, oil, and climate at this and democracy? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. I'm glad you asked the question. From a personal perspective, I really do think our democracy is in trouble and facing <clears throat> significant challenges. And 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 the I think the press has been extremely important in in terms of scrutinizing what what president, what the government is doing, and companies. And I think companies need to engage with journalists and, and, and respond and be responsive and as transparent as they can be. Um, and I think in terms of um, Republicans and Democrats, one thing, the, the, the silver linings of this um, troubling time I think we've been going through is it's, it's t- taught me that Democrats and Republicans have uh, who who think about the issues, who really care about our country and our democracy, have a lot more in common than I ever would have guessed. And so I've really got. I, I tend to be from the Democratic side, but I'm you know more, you know sort of a centrist. But um, the when I see the dialogue between really thoughtful people who disagree on a lot of policy issues, it makes me think we can come to solutions as long as we are able to preserve our institutions and they are under threat. So we are in a really serious time, both from you know climate change and issues like that, 
But to solve those issues, we need a strong democracy where citizens participate, where we have a vigorous press, where we have a strong, three strong branches of government. So we're at a really important moment here. And I think, you know, I think we're going to get through it and we're going to be stronger, but it, it's, it's, it's significant. You've been listening to Climate One. We've been talking about corporate responsibility and what's ahead for climate policy. My guests were Ted Boutras, a partner at Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher in Los Angeles, who represents Chevron, and Scott Siegel, a partner at Bracewell, a Washington, D.C. lobbying firm. Ann Carlson, environmental law professor and co-director of UCLA's Emmett Institute on Climate Change and Environment. And Ellen Gilmer, senior legal reporter with Bloomberg News. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your pods. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Justin Norton. Annie Chelsea edited the program. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.